Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Okay, hi everybody, welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast, and I'm here today with Veronica Riero of Anthropologia 2.0. And so, Veronica, thanks very much for coming on. Looking forward to talking with you today. So you're a business anthropologist out of Spain. On LinkedIn, you identify as a business anthropologist. Also, you mentioned qualitative research and UX in the title. So I want to kind of dig into those different titles with you. Um, But in terms of sort of main role, co-founder and chief research officer at Anthropologia 2.0. And so... um, I'd like if you could maybe to start it off, give us a little background on how you came into anthropology, academically speaking, and now how you've kind of got to being a co-founder of this organization. Hi, Matt. Well, thank you for having me in your wonderful podcast. Um, well, as as you said, I'm currently founder of Anthropologia 2.0 that has quite a long naming, probably not the best one, if I would have known more about branding and naming when I started this five years ago, I probably should have should have chose another name. But anyhow, let's start uh, from the beginning. Um, well, as you said, I'm Veronica Rayero. I'm based in Valencia. I'm 27 years old. I studied uh, social and cultural anthropology as an undergrad program at the University of Granada in the south of Spain. And that's a training that is a very classical anthropology training. So um, all the classical theories and and, uh, the old school way of doing ethnography, right? Long periods of time and exotic remote places, etc. So it's not like we had a lot of training on applying anthropology. To, to, to different sectors, but especially not to business. So at, originally when I was studying at the university, I was focusing on medical anthropology. And so the obvious step would have been to follow and do a master's on medical anthropology. We have a very good one here in, in north of Spain, in Catalonia. But I've always... I always like to take unpredictable paths. And so that was such an obvious path that I wasn't so interested in it. And I kind of wanted to um, do research in the places where the people, uh, the doctors and the pharmaceutical um, 
people were getting trained so directly to understand what were their codes and their languages and their perspectives. And so I chose to do my master's in, in, a, univer- in a faculty of pharmacy. Uh, so it's on rational use of medicines and drugs. And that was uh, very enlightening to start understanding how anthropology can be applied to different settings. It wasn't my original goal when I did that, but going from a four-year university training where everyone was an anthropologist, I was um, giving uh, for granted a lot of what we did and a lot of the ways we were thinking. And then suddenly I was in a master's program where I was the only anthropologist and everyone in my class were were, medical doctors, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, biotechnologists, there were these kinds of people, no, these were my classmates. And so the type of questions I would come up at class were so different to the, to, to the kind of questions they would have. No, we, we all realized and it was very enriching how this, uh, our mental models were limiting, constri- constraining us in a way too, no? and how it was so enriching to, to, to think of the challenges they were presenting to us in the masters collaboratively. So coming from this, different disciplines, no? So this started already giving me ideas of, of, of how we could apply anthropology in ways that I hadn't been taught at the, at the university. Um, around that time, I, I also did, I had my first jobs and some were like in, in Red Cross, so NGOs, other were at the university. Uh, for the Department of Anthropology, participating in different projects. And so I had this first in professional experiences, but I, I just had like a, a intuition that that wasn't the, the right setting for me to work. I wasn't too comfortable with the rhythms at which things were advancing. I wasn't too uh, fond of the purisms, no? So this idea of always... Uh, on a romanticization no, of the classical way of doing ethnography, which, of course, blinded them or biased them a lot, no, not to use a lot of innovations that we could be implementing in our discipline. So those job experiences gave me this idea that, okay, I need to find another place where I actually feel more comfortable and I feel my work can be more useful. So around that time, I started finding out about anthropologists who were working in various different settings. And uh, I realized most of them were in the United States. So most of the references at that time, so talking about no, no, Genevieve Bell, uh, Rita Denny, uh, Patricia Sunderland, um, you know, Melissa Thefkins, all these people I was reading about, and they were all in the United States. So... I realized there wasn't a lot of that translated into Spanish. And what I did with a group of classmates at that time was to start a blog, uh, which was Anthropologia 2.0. That was the very origin of of Anthropologia 2.0. So we mostly curated and translated content, right, from that we read or heard in podcasts from other parts of the world. So United States mostly, but also Denmark, and a little bit of other places. And this blog grew pretty quickly and very fast. We had a lot of readers because we weren't anticipating how many people were actually in the same situation of us, like us, right? 
So people that recently finished their degrees in anthropology and that had really no references on how to start a professional uh, life out of academia, right? And especially because a lot of in a lot of Spanish-speaking countries, uh, we are not so good with English, right? So all this knowledge that was out there in English was not even accessible or reachable, right, to a lot of people. So the blog became pretty important. And um, so that gave us a lot of motivation to, to continue with it. And we realized that uh, up until that moment, we had only been mostly like kind of translating linguistically things. But now we needed to do a, a cultural translation because we started being in contact with our readers and receiving emails every week by, by different people in Latin America. And we realized we were like creating these expectations like if everyone was going to be Genevieve Bell, right? And that's not a reality, right? Being business anthropology is going to take many different shapes and forms, depending on where you are, depending on, you know, your personal experiences, depending on a lot of different things. And Latin America and Spain, you know, well, it's not Silicon Valley. It's very different. So we started doing this cultural translation, no? So how can we adapt what this what for me were mentors, no? these people who have opened these paths, how can we learn from what they've done, but also do our own thing? And so that was the second phase of Antropologia 2.0, a very important one to, you know, where we, it was like a turning uh, point. And, and that gave us more visibility online and the way we were talking and addressing, I think it was engaging not only students, but now it started uh, calling attention of people in business because we were able to you know, bring a, a different uh, element that it was adapted to their cultural context, in this case, Spain. No? So that's how our first client found us. And it was a pure coincidence. He was looking for anthropologists who would be able to help him for a project and uh, our blog came out. And so he reached to us and um, it was very interesting because that was my very, very first business meeting as an anthropologist and I didn't have any experience at that moment no no case studies no portfolio <laughs> nothing right really right um but uh we were very transparent about that so we were very transparent about we don't have like suce successful case studies yet but but here's what we think we can do um and, and we were very lucky that they gave us that first opportunity. Also, I think uh, because they were very, they were valuing that honesty. And I, and with time, I've realized that company like that, those are used to working with consultants who always want to give this sense of security and of know it all. So I think they were kind of shocked when we came, like very humble, like, you know, we don't know if we'll be able to help you, but let us try so uh, that was our very, very first project. We weren't prepared at all. We didn't even know how to do an invoice or how much should we charge for an interview or an hour of participant observation. This topics hadn't been addressed at our university training. So, so it was a big challenge just to uh, you know, prepare ourselves to, to the professional world. But of course, also to have a first project in which to work. And this specific company, it's a big meat industry company in Spain. Um, and so, well, wanting to understand all the different um, diet 
changes and and food cultural trends and how they're going to shape how we eat tomorrow, right, in the future. So they can also anticipate to the the market demands. So uh, that was five years ago, and we continue working with this company until now. We have never stopped in these five years to work with them. So that in itself for us, of course, is a, it's a great sign that we, you know, that our job is uh, uh, useful, right, for, for these companies. Um, since then, of course, we've worked with a lot of other different companies, big, small, national, international, public and private, because that's also something very important for me. That I've learned now that most of what we do as business anthropologists can also be applied to the public um, organizations right so so that's a little bit about uh how i i came to anthropologia 2.0 how i came to to found it currently we are a team of three um and yes i'm the i'm the head of research and so i'm also managing all the strategic part of the business as well you know so sometimes um in this identity of a business anthropologist Sometimes you feel more like an anthropologist. Sometimes you feel feel more like a <laughs> business manager, right? So it, it depends of the day. Great. Yeah, so there's a lot to dig into there. Now, first to go back to your academic program just a bit for the sake of, um, you know, a little comparison between here in the States since most listeners are from the States. So, you know, it seems like similarity is, is that most programs are teaching for to produce academic anthropologists under the assumption that you're going to stay in academia. Uh, here in the States, there's increasingly, um, f- well, there's fewer and fewer jobs available for anthropologists in academia. Is it similar in Spain right now? Yes, yes. And so then, um, and you you said that you know, they weren't teaching really, you know, any sort of apl- application to business, which again is kind of the same here, except for a few programs. Um, like I went to the University of North Texas, which is really focused on applied anthropology and training you to work in few sectors, but business being one of them. Um, but most, especially PhD programs, are not training for that here. But then you you also were saying that you're getting a lot of people reaching out to you, both from Latin America and Spain. So um, is it basically the case that you were finding that a lot of people were graduating with a degree? And they weren't able to find a job. And so then they were looking, you know, then they, then they sort of discovered business and hence discovered your website. Was that kind of like how it went? Yes, yes. So to start, I know more of the context in Spain than in Latin America. Latin America is really big. I know from some countries more. So I'll be talking more about Spain. Sometimes I can make reference to Latin America too. Um, in Spain, anthropology was what we called a... Uh, uh, degree of um, it's like a university program of second degree which meant that you had to have a previous university education program to study anthropology so up until 2010 I think anyone in Spain that was an anthropologist had also studies maybe in history or in comparative literature or even I don't know health studies and things like that you couldn't just go into anthropology directly. So that means that, um, one, people weren't arriving like super young at, to study research, right? They were not 18 or 19 when they started. And second, they all had this other professional or scholar uh, identity, right? So they were not so, I think they didn't have the need 
to defend so much their title as an anthropologist. So I come from one of the very first generations in Spain of people that uh, did go to study anthropology as the first option at university. So I entered university, you know, my anthropology studies when I was 19. Um, So that's already a big difference that didn't happen in Latin America. So in Spain, what we've had, we had a lot of, as I said, health studies people. So people, for example, we had a lot of nurses because it gave them a lot of extra points to get like a fixed job position uh, in the public hospital if they had this kind of extra studies. So uh, like in the 90s, maybe 60% of the anthropologists in Spain were also nurses. You see, so it was like, you know, the the type of... uh, scientific literature that was coming out and such, it was also very biased by that kind of, you know, all that situation. However, it's true that there was also, um, there's always been some people um, doing industrial anthropology, let's say, not so much business anthropology, but industrial, or even, well, we have one of the most important cooperatives in Spain, which is Mondragón. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we had anthropologists there studying uh, those kind of organizational studies, for example, but they were never really well received in, in, in the Spanish academia, let's say. So this would always be more like lonely anthropologists in this adventure, you know, to seek ways of applying it. The, the university curricula, yeah, I imagine is very similar to the one in the States in the way that it's more oriented to, uh, like, a lot of theory, right? And like hardly no practice at all. To the point where I would tell you that when I finished my studies, there were still no uh, arrangements between my university and any company or organization. So we couldn't do an internship. Um, I finally was able to do an internship in a hospital because pretty much I made all the contracts and connections between the hospital and the Department of Anthropology. But that wasn't even established yet. So I would say in Spain, in a way, anthropology is kind of a new discipline. So I'm very positive and, and optimistic that it's going to boom here in Spain because suddenly we're going to have generations and generations. Now, every year we have, I don't know, 500 people graduating of anthropology in Spain. We are going to need to find job positions for all of those people. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now you're teaching right now, right? Yeah. And so um, that was so, you know, are you getting to really bring in much more of sort of business anthropology perspective and, and train that next generation for the type of work we're doing? Absolutely. So, well, I didn't talk about that yet, but this uh, during the confinement, uh, me and my business partner, Pablo Mondragón, we t- took the opportunity of being confined to, to set up another business, which was Humanix. And this is an online school just for applied humanities. So this time we didn't want to limit ourselves to anthropology, um, but we want to talk about humanities in the more broad aspects, so including arts, including philosophy, right? But always applied. So for example, how do you apply philosophy to design, right? Um, so the first, very first course that we, that we put out in Humanics, of course, uh, is in the domain that we know more and that is business anthropology. So it's the first course on business anthropology that there is in Spanish. 
and we currently have 90 students taking the course. The course is very extensive. I would say it's pretty much like a one-year master program. Uh, it has 15 units, um, so we cover everything from the what, let's say, you know, what is business anthropology, what is the tradition, the history, you know, which are the most relevant authors, what are the books that you need to read, everything, to all the hows. And that is, you know, all the know-how that we've acquired in these five years working with different clients, everything we wish we would have known when we started, right? From the very boring administrative tasks to the very critical ways of thinking on how can we apply anthropological theories to things like service design, for example, no? Or UX research. Got it. So pivoting a bit to to your company and, and um so you you started with this large you know food company that you've been working with for the past five years, but you've diversified since there since then. So you know you you just mentioned Serstein, you just mentioned UX. So what do you what are you touching on? Are you doing more organizational, you know, more in the kind of marketing consumer behavior space, UX, service design? Are you touching all of it or are you focusing? Mm-hmm. Um, we are touching most of what you said, except for organizational. We had one little project that was on workspace uh, ethnography. We did ethnography in workspace back when we when there were still a lot of <laughs> uh, offices with a lot of people. Um, and we particularly did not like it so much. We not. Uh, I think there's a lot of complications to doing ethnography. Um, for a company where you're studying their own employees, right? It, it, you know, it was it was quite a challenge and one that we were just not so interested in. So we don't do any organizational uh, studies anymore. So we help companies uh, <clears throat> understanding the cultural nuances of the people they are addressing their products or services. So their clients, their users, but of course, we, we try not to use these categories, users and, and, and clients, but at the same time, we understand that we need to talk business language to, to have a more comprehensible communication with our clients. So also, um, we use this concept because you, you have to, and, and this is all part of a, of a game, right? Once you're out there, uh, on the internet, you have to know about SEO, right? And, uh, and you have to be well positioned. You have to be among the first ones in Google. So if it's UX research this year that people are looking for, if that's the keyword, well, sometimes you have to, you know, give in a little bit. And then later you'll try to uh, talk more about the real things that you think you do or you defend, right? And what are the differences between UX research and uh, anthropology or design thinking and ethnography and these kinds of things. But at first you, you need to attract people's attention, right? And that's really important. So if that means sometimes using buzzwords, then we do. That does not mean we limit ourselves to the buzzword, right? It's, it's, a, it's a tool, it's something strategic. Because we know that these concepts, well, they boom and sometimes they are a little bit like empty words. Sometimes a lot of people use them. They don't even know exactly what they mean or it could just be, of course, you know, from a cultural analysis perspective, they also don't need to mean the same thing everywhere, right? So maybe UX means something 
in the States and it means something different in, in Spain, or it means something for an engineer and a totally different thing for an anthropologist, right? But isn't it wonderful if it's able to connect engineers and anthropologists? That's what's important to me. Yeah, yeah, good point. And so, you know, based on what you just said, I'd like to, to do another comparison. So, you know, in the States, the way we talk about business anthropology might be different than the way some people possibly in Spain or maybe bro more broadly speaking, say in Europe, speak about it. And I say that based on being at the Global Business Anthropology Summit that was at Fordham in New York and just chatting with some people. It seems like, you know, there's some different perspectives on, you know, what that term means or even if that term is the best term. So what is business anthropology, at least to you, um, and maybe you can speak just about what it maybe more broadly is viewed as, whether that's in Spain or, or more widely? Hmm. Um, well, when I started, I think I used to talk more about anthropology in business, like the name of your podcast, uh, or anthropology for business. And so at that moment, the kind of discussions we had in the team were more around what are the differences between doing anthropology for business or anthropology of business. And this in Spanish maybe makes even more sense, right? Um, so, of course, being anthropology for business, all that it's more like it's commissioned projects and, and, and it comes with a whole bunch of other things. No, So you're not really uh, just looking for interesting things, but things that can actually be useful and applied to them. Um, many times, for good and for bad, we like it or not, many times your work is helping brands and corporations just to make more profit. Right. So those are the kinds of things that we felt came with anthropology for business and anthropology of business. We, we really enjoyed reading those kinds of literature, especially in the beginning. Uh, but they were more, again, academic scholar. Right. So scholars talking about uh, their interpretations of, of business. No? So more focus on organizational studies, but also on the other branches that you've named. So the, the, that was also not working for us. So finally, because we heard in English business anthropology, we started talking about antropología empresarial, which is kind of the same thing. No, you, you've now uh, made business into an adjective, right? And with it, now you're not talking about an anthropology that works for business or about business. It's a whole new anthropology. Right? It's an anthropology in itself. And that was for us very liberating, I think, because it meant, you know, we, we could stop maybe fighting with other types of anthropologies and anthropologists who were feeling different emotions, most of them not very positive, about anthropologists, you know, taking anthropology into business. It meant that we could create a whole community around people that understood that, uh, you know, this new way of understanding anthropology and applying it to business settings was something that was being formed at this very moment. And it's not, you know, we're not limited by what our discipline has done before. We are opening new paths and we are innovating with what we have. Right. And so I think that's why we've landed with, with that at the end. Um, I don't think... Um, before we were talking about antropología empresarial, I don't think there was a lot of people talking about that specific concept. As I said, no, I think there was more of 
or four. And then, yes, like you said, there were some people talking about antropología corporativa, so corporate anthropology and things like that too, but it was very residual. This is starting to bloom uh, now and here in Spain and in, and in Latin America, the same thing. So there was, like you said, industrial, uh, corporative, things like that, but, but nothing quite as business anthropology. So now, you know, in Northern Europe, you see design anthropology talked about, you know, quite extensively, written about extensively as well. And um, there's also an argument of, you know, is, is design a sort of subset of business? Are they distinct? Right. There's, there's a whole conversation that could be had there. But is there any talk of design anthropology, you know, in Spain? Do you use that term at all? Um, not so much. Definitely not like in the Nordic countries, not like uh, Finland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, um, where all this kind of more participatory design comes from, right? So they have a longer tradition and a very mature um, design anthropology, I would say. In Spain, not quite the same. Again, because, you know, there's this linguistic... Um, limitation or something that we need to overcome because just like it took us a while to overcome that we needed to use the word business as an adjective uh, for antropología empresarial you cannot really make design an adjective in Spanish so we have the same problem you either have an anthropology for design or of design but we don't have a concept that talks about that specific type of uh, design and anthropology merged and as a new thing so, so that's interesting. interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting to see how you know, the language sort of dictates almost the way we frame out what we do to a degree. Yeah. Um, okay, so so you start your business. You said, you know, you didn't even know how to do an invoice, right? And obviously there's a number of things to learn if you didn't know how to do an invoice. So to just tell me, you know, about some of the challenges, you know, for anybody that's listening that's maybe interested in doing this, what, what challenges did you have in that, you know, with that first client or even first yeah, few clients, uh, both maybe anthropological and business. Okay, well, there was, like you said, a bunch of challenges in the beginning. Um, sometimes when you look back, it seems uh, you kind of even miss it, right? Because when there was so much to learn, <laughs> everything was easier in a way, right? Um, so, as I said, from creating a budget for, for a project. Now, I don't know if that's something that is taught at the universities in Spain, I mean, in the States, when, when you go to study anthropology, but here it wasn't, right? So creating a budget was in itself uh, quite a thing, or even uh, becoming a legal freelancer in Spain. You know, there's a lot of uh, bureaucracy to, to, to do that, not to actually be able to to send out an invoice, you cannot just automatically do that, right? <laughs> so, so all that process of how to, to be able to operate kind of like a business uh, person. Um, then, of course, learning the business language. Um, when, you, when I had the first meetings with clients, there was all this business slang that I had never heard of and that I had to pick up. Um, fortunately, I speak pretty good English. So a lot of the slang is in English. <laughs> um, so I, it was a bit easier for me. But what, it, what, what was interesting also for me was to see a lot of the people I was talking to 
um, they were using these concepts and they themselves didn't know what they were saying because they don't speak English. So they're just, I don't know, saying things that they've heard um, and more or less make an idea of what they're saying, but they you know, also don't have a lot of, of the other linguistic or cultural context of where that word is coming from. So that was interesting, but I did have to, to learn how to communicate with, um, with business people. And this is actually something that I've uh, had conversations with other business anthropologists in the States. Some of them have told me like, there's no such thing as business language. So I guess that's up to dispute. For me, there is definitely there's a business language. Yeah, just like agree with you. the way I talked in the first meetings was very academic as well. And that has changed. Right? I can still, you know, bring uh, complex theories or complex ideas, but I have to make them understandable. I have to break them down to, you know, digestible ideas that's my job my job is not to tell my client oh this is very complex well yeah it's it's your responsibility to make it a little bit less complex and of course not fall into the twitter length or the post-it idea no so it's find a balance between the um uh, deep description uh, and the twitter no um so those were maybe you know, some of the most, the biggest challenges when it comes to more business things, everything from, you know, learning how to have a presence, digital identity, right? That was also very important in the beginning. Uh, now I understand if you're not online, you basically don't exist, right? For potential clients. So um, that was very interesting also, no? How we have, like, like Amber Case would say, no? Now you have this opportunity of, create another self-identity as an already grown-up person and that is you know if you start applying a little bit of Goffman also know how is your self-representation in society but now you do this with this digital identities it's very experimental it's very interesting and then it's things that you learned that are good for your business but are also good for you as a researcher right to later understand um, make sense of what you see out there in the internet you no, know, when you're doing Netnography or, mm -hmm. or things like that. So there are a few things I want to circle back to. Um, so in terms of, well, you just mentioned netnography. So obviously the past year you've gone fully remote, but were you doing, you know, much digital or netnography oh. or digital ethnography? Were you doing much of that prior to COVID or is that something new for you? Yes, two things. One, we were always doing some virtual ethnography, and that's why we call ourselves 2.0 also. no, It was a, a wink to these kinds of new ways of doing things through technology. Um, but the second thing is that we have not only done remote ethnography in this year. That's something I've been recently talking about in different places. We've also been doing uh, more traditional physical ethnography in this year, taking a lot of precautions and and with COVID um, contracts and, 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 you know, with the participants and researchers and et cetera. But we've been lucky enough to be able to still meet face-to-face -face with our participants this year. That's great. And um, so if you've been doing it from the beginning, then, you know, maybe we have a similar perspective on this, but, you know, there, you know, to me, there is value to both. I know a lot of people this year, it is, you know, the past year-ish, 
It's the first time they might have been doing it virtual, digital. Um, and some people are saying it's good. Some people are saying it's bad. I mean, I think like everything, it's good and bad. And it's about finding the right fit for the tool at the time. Um, did you learn anything this year and like maybe doing, you know, trying to do some in con, you know, in context stuff in a, in this maybe more restrictive way, or did you try any new digital tools that maybe you haven't used previously? You know, it had, even though you've been doing both, did you learn anything particular this year? Hmm. Mm. Um, so with the projects that we've still seen the participants, um, I think adapting, adapting your techniques and your tools, it's it's something that we constantly have to be practicing as well. No, the more you're able, the more you practice adapting, the more you're able to do it. And as ethnographers, that's a that's like a very, for me at least, high level skill that you have to have. No, because you want to enter into real people's life. Real people's lives are messy. They are not perfect agendas like your recruiter wants you to to think. Um, so you have to be very prepared to the unexpected. <laughs> so so we we were very flexible, and we had a lot of um, very human communications with the participants that we were working with. Right, so it wasn't you know another commercial projects. Sometimes you haven't even talked to the participant before you arrive to their house, right? It's directly the recruiting agency that has closed the interview and such, and there you appear. So here, no, we made sure we had video calls with the people before. We wanted to understand what were their uh, limits and uh, fears when it came to confronting this situation, right? How had they experienced the whole uh, COVID experience and, and why were they willing to participate or not? And we explained to them a bit what ethnography is and why it's usually important for us to go to their houses and spend a lot of time with them. And so we negotiated with the participants, how could we adapt this? So for some of them, it was, come pick me up at my house. You, I won't let you come in because we have this COVID uh, contract, but you, you know, I want you to know my neighborhood. Because my neighborhood, I've always lived here. It tells you a lot about me also. I can show you my house from the outside. We can do the interview walking around my neighbor. We might have opportunities to meet some of my neighbors, etc. So we, you know, we, we really adapted that. And even though we weren't able to get into the people's house, we did a big effort to really understand their cultural context still in different ways. Um, and then when it comes to the to the virtual uh, techniques, there's been, like you said, a lot of very interesting things going on this year. Uh, I had friends that uh, were sending GoPros to the participants and doing interviews while seeing what you know the uh, first person um, image, etc. I didn't do anything so uh, I don't know using like so much technology or anything like that. Uh, but we've done a lot of digital diary studies this year, and we've really tried to um, make it a, a profound experience for the participants because we randomly realized after the first two projects that we did these digital diary studies that we were asking the participants to become observers right, of their own experience. And this meant that just... That, that we couldn't just give them a, 
a list of tasks or uh, no, a description of how we want you to do this. No, it was pretty much like training them to be cultural observers. And depending on the topic, so some were more commercial and, and maybe, you know, relevant, but maybe the epiphany moment was not so so great. Like, let's say, for example, I did a project for, for an audiovisual uh, producer. And so it was about how people consume you know, different platforms and such. And well, yes, there was epiphany moments for some participants realizing how much time they spend or, or what their practices are when they're watching certain uh, films and series. But that wasn't so relevant. But then with other participants recently, we did one about uh, people living with obesity and having them do a diary for 10 days. They've, some of them really had moments where suddenly they realized something about their own life they've always been trying to look away from unconsciously, right? And suddenly it's un unraveled, it's revealed there. And they have a group of people to think about this situation and, and do an analysis about it. And it's, kind, it's been kind of life-changing for some of those people, right? So this has been totally unpredictable and unexpected for us. Um, so that's been great. Like you always want to give back to the community, give back in different ways. But when you see it so tangible, the way that these people are taking from this experience of participating in the research, um, for me, I mean, it, it makes everything worth it. Yeah, it sounds great. But, on, you know, maybe on a flip side, that maybe those kind of like big aha moments potentially also create some new like ethical you know, situations to think through, right? And and how the participants are part, well, participating in that process, but also sort of discovering maybe things they've, like you said, wanted to look away for, from. So did you sort of in this new context, you know, run into any new ethical situations that challenged you to think about the work differently? Oh, yes. Uh, and the ethics is always a huge challenge, uh, for us as business anthropologists and for a lot of other different professions, right? And that's something important because as you work with interdisciplinary teams, you know, our, my colleagues who are neuroscience, they also have these ethical you know, challenges and such. So it's not like they're specific of our discipline and we need to be talking with other uh, disciplines as well as how to confront them. For me personally, uh, one of my biggest challenge currently is all the, since we're doing a lot of digital studies, like we're talking about, um, you're producing a lot of data that is in different platforms. If you're using Zoom, if you talk with your participants through WhatsApp or Messenger, uh, you're like using Google Drive to work with other people in other parts of the world or Teams, this gets very messy. The data of your participants is all over. You're not controlling the, channel, the you know, channels. And in Europe, we have a very tight GDPR, right? So regulation on how to, you need to do full custody of the data and, and make sure that it's always safe, right? Um, so that's one of my biggest challenges right now. I don't think there's being enough proper training on how GDPR is affecting ethnographers. 
Uh, I think it would be great to have some more of that. So this is an open call for anyone who is listening and wants to offer some training on that. Um, I've been really looking into, you know, how GDPR affects us. And it just gives me, I don't know, it, it adds 20% uh, or 30% of hours every day to my schedule, to my week of work, just to make sure that I'm protecting all that data and I'm making you know, good use of it. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, Don Podiad in um, a Society for Applied Anthropology talk briefly touched on it. Um, and so um, I know he has some thoughts on it, but yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And we now have not quite, you know, not quite as strict, but California has something that's now, you know, that's uh, similar. And it is certainly creating yeah, more maybe overhead for us, of course, for good reason. But it is definitely going to challenge us, especially on platforms like a messenger or WhatsApp, you know, for sure. Um, so, you know, in there, you just mentioned neuroscience and how, you know, we should be talking to those other disciplines. So that using that as sort of a jumping off point, I want to go back to one of your previous comments as well. So you mentioned like sort of business language business speak, as I would call it. And, you know, I think every discipline has their own, even within business, you know, finance has some common language that they use versus marketing, right? And um, and so really it's even a little bit more nuanced than probably just saying business. Um, but certainly, you know, we, each, uh, each area, you know, each industry is different. Each academic discipline has its own. And so do then the, the sort of public and in, in their general imagination of like of how they conceive the world. And so I'm curious, tying that thought together with what you said earlier about how, you know, you might use a buzzword like UX or design thinking really to get found uh, on the internet. You're speaking of how, you know, valuable uh, really digital marketing was. So what, how are, how are most of your clients coming to you? Or is it today, is it referrals or are you really leveraging you know, the web to, to get a lot of your customers? Yes, uh, the web has worked um, miracles uh, for um, getting clients. And that is, of course, for anyone who's listening to us and is starting their journey as a business anthropologist, that's the question that I get most often. No? How do you find your first client or the first clients? It's, it's a very uh, challenging one. Um but in my experience, yes, as you said, a website and a LinkedIn, if that's what you have and whatever. So and in, if you don't have still a portfolio of real projects that you've done under commission, feel free to start doing a small project pro bono or just out of your own curiosity and putting together a slide and presenting that as you know part of your portfolio. But put out there information on what is the kind of work that you you, you can do, right? And showcase it. If you're not showing it out there, how how is anyone going to reach out to you, no? So that's the first one. Of course, the referrals, uh, definitely. And this is, again, you can go more into business language or, or, or less, but uh, the funnel canvas, uh, funnel sales canvas, no? And uh, you can use those kind of things to see exactly what, how you are getting your clients, how you're making them stay, how you're making sure that they're making referrals afterwards, right? There's a lot of different ways uh, how you can make sure your clients are doing uh, recommendations. And you have to be very patient. Um, even though clients 
this is a joke I always say in Spain, at least my clients always want the results for yesterday. So they are always in a big hurry when it comes to you doing the research, but then they have their slow rhythm. Sometimes I've been recommended from one company to another. It took them two years to actually present me a project where we could start working, right? So um, yeah, you also, you need to take some time, but um, talking about these buzzwords and using them to attract attention, um, especially again, for those people who are starting this path, um, look for those keywords. Don't limit yourself to looking for job calls that have the word anthropologist in it. Uh, that was a mistake that I used to do in the very beginning. And if you try, if you put an alarm in LinkedIn for when you get a job post for anthropologists, you're never going to get any <laughs> alarms. I've tried for three years and then now I have it for UX researcher. Every single day I get at least a dozen of them. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at the job description, they are looking for people like us. Right, with the type of skills that, that we can bring into the table. So, uh, yeah, I encourage everyone to start thinking, uh, like make a list of what are 20 keywords that describe uh, what you do or the type of job position that you'd like to have in the future. And make sure you're digging into all of those as well. So, you know, on that point, you have, you know, I, I think the company website has, has a, um, you know, it comes up in, I know when I've searched things, it comes up. So it has a you know a fair amount of presence. And I'll link to the website, of course, in the show notes. Um, so you've obviously done a good job there. Is there, would you say that's happened by accident or is there things that you've been doing intentionally that, you know, others could learn from whether they're trying to practice in, you know, wherever they're trying to practice around the world? Yes, we did a few things in, in purpose. So the first thing, as I mentioned before, was learning a little bit the rules that rule Google. Uh, and we didn't know anything about CEO and all these things when we started. So, you know, maybe now they're more obvious to everyone. Back in 2015, 16, when we started blogging, it wasn't for us at least. So uh, what we wanted to do was just write essays like we had learned at the university, but that's never going to give you good positioning. So once you start learning... At first, you feel like they cut off one arm because what do you mean I can only use a thousand words and I have to put my keywords so many times in the first paragraph and all this nonsense. It seems like nonsense, but it makes a sense and it's for a specific thing. So, if, you know, use those kind of rules and those rules change every year. So you have to stay updated. There's also... Uh, you know, ways in which, uh, uh, depending on what programs you're using, but it automatically gives you some recommendations on how to improve that. Um, and then another thing, we were actively very persistent, let's say, in the beginning, um, until we had like a big community. So when we started, we would, uh, back at that time, we were on Facebook and and we would just like search for all the groups and pages of anthropologists in Spanish because that was our target. Um, and we would join them all and we would start conversations there uh, and share our links and be like, hey, we're doing this. And of course, the you know first times you get very few reactions and people who are actually interested in those conversations um, because there's also this period of, we felt like there was a lot of people who were more 
either shy or either still afraid because there was such a stigma from the academia that they didn't want to, I don't want to leave a comment on these people's blog because my professor sees that I'm commenting here, I might be risking my tenure track. And that's the reality of how stigmatized business anthropology is for, for people who are also with, wanting to do some you know, PhD or whatever. Um, so we were just very persistent and that probably was part of our initial digital identity, you know, something that we wouldn't be so much in person because we, we, I think none, none of uh, the people in my team are like so persistent in, in real life, but that's what digital identity allows you to, to be and do, <laughs> you know, try different prompts and, and, you know, mascaras and such again, no, thinking of government, just try doing different plays and in, in, in different scenarios. Great. And um, so you mentioned PhD. So I want to come back to one of your recent articles, but also just uh, one last point on, or one last idea on that. So you also speak, um, you have a couple of nice talks that are up on, you know, that can be found on YouTube and I'll again, link those in the show notes. So are you, you know, one, just to acknowledge, I mean, I think you're doing great work in terms of building the brand of, of business anthropology and really helping to make that that concept visible. So thanks. But I'd also like to ask, you know, are you finding that giving talks is helping you get business? Um, you know, is it is it are you doing it for sort of because you want to spread the word or are you also finding that it's it's a good avenue to get found and, and eventually get business? Absolutely. And so being in a stage at a big event, be it a corporate event normally, uh, it's already giving you a certain authority among the participants in that event, uh, right? Those are the kind of social dynamics that we understand very well. So um, if you go to one of those events as just an, somebody that has paid their ticket and goes there as a listener, you are the one who has to be persistent and, and trying to make everyone take your business card and, and things like that, not trying to ignite conversations in this networking and such. When you are the one on the, on the stage, um, you're, the moment you come out of the stage, you have 10 people waiting to talk to you. So of course it gives you a competitive advantage, a huge one. So um, it's very worth participating in those kinds of events. Um, of course, uh, we've, gotten projects after participating in those kinds of talks but it's also you know there's also a deep honest interest in uh spreading the word of what anthropologists can do because when we do these kinds of events and especially if they're recorded and you yourself have done an excellent ted talk that i really liked um so you're not doing it just for you you're opening possibilities for a lot of other people as well right so um, so it's not just something that we're looking for a returnment of investment for anthropologia 2.0 is part of our uh, you know for bigger task of making our our work visible all of our uh, anthropologist work yeah and so you know on that point the you know there's, there's the kind of concept i don't know if you have this concept in, in spain but like of public anthropology or at least in like you know the english-speaking countries right there's the concept of public anthropology. And so, you know, there's a debate of what does that term exactly mean and, you know, in which sort of formats or mediums does that make sense? And right, there's there's a, obviously a debate in nearly everything in anthropology. And th this is not short, you know, certainly has its own. But 
um, in whatever shape that may take for different people, you know, there's, there's the opportunity um, to potentially speak to people outside of our discipline. So, you know, one of the things I've been interested in is raising, you know, awareness of, of business anthropology or anthropology at large, both for the, you know, for the benefit of anybody who has that degree and wants to get a job. And that's a little bit about what this podcast is, but hopefully over time, like say this podcast is also, you know, I'm hoping to bring it to people outside of the discipline. And so speaking at corporate events is, I appreciate it, is a good way to do that. But do you have any other thoughts or are you trying to do anything particular in that space where, you know, where, you know, you're, you're really trying to get the word out to, to people outside of the discipline so that we're just not speaking to ourselves and kind of in our own echo, echo chamber? Um, on a very personal level, but this is my experience, um, after five years where I've been very actively involved in a lot of anthropological communities, so I was convener of the Applied Anthropology Network or co-organizer of the Why the World Needs Anthropologists for a few years, and then last year a bit involved with the Global Business Anthropology Summit, also involved with IBR, Anthropología Iberoamericana, uh, the association in Spanish, and where we did the first uh, panels in the three years uh, in their Congress, uh, General Congress of Anthropology. We did panels on business anthropology for the very first time, et cetera, et cetera. So like really endogamic, let's say. So personally, what I'm doing is stepping away from, from all of that. Um, slowly but, but steady, I'm moving into how can I... Um, because all of that I do voluntarily, right? So how can I volunteer more of my time to other organizations that are not focused on anthropology and still show uh, the value that we can add? So, for example, recently I'm a bit interested on um, digital rights, so connected to what we were talking about, data, privacy in the digital era. So I'm starting to get involved in, in European uh, communities and associations that are working to defend our, our digital rights as citizens. And so I'm one of the very few anthropologists there, right? Well, so that's another way that I think I'm able to leverage this kind of work that I've been doing these last years. Because when you're only trying to defend anthropology among anthropologists, it's pretty easy and it gets old pretty quickly, right? So... Uh, challenge yourselves and, and you know, whatever is your interest. In the case of my partner, Pablo Mondragon, he's very interested in transhumanism. So he's now joined a couple of international organizations on transhumanism. And surprisingly, there's not that many anthropologists either. So that's what he's doing. He's defending the role that anthropology could have in that specific topic. So, so I think we all need to be doing more of that too, stepping outside of our comfort zones as anthropologists and you know, moving on to other places, not just to advocate uh, you know, the, the, the amazing things that we can do as an anthropologist, but also to humble down and learn from other colleagues in other disciplines, because we also need to learn and relearn a lot more yeah, great. And so to sort of pivot towards maybe the last portion here, um, I want to ask you about your article, should I enroll in a PhD if I want to be a business anthropologist and maybe tie that into some 
you know, recommendations that you might have for anybody who wants to be a business anthropologist. So I think the article does a good job of pointing out like pros and cons and, you know, the various things we need to think about if we're considering that. Um, so you want to maybe just, uh, summarize your perspective on that, because of course it's a, maybe it's a fit for some, it's not necessarily a fit for others. So maybe if you could just summarize what you think is, you know, how that, you know, how you would recommend that to somebody or, or what you would say to somebody if they're considering that. And, um, I'll again, link to that, which I think is, is a great article. And then, you know, after that piece, maybe we can just talk about what you would maybe suggest to others who want to get into business anthropology. Okay, well, that's a tough one, Matt, um, because I, I don't think I'm the fittest person to answer that specific question precisely because as I express in that post that you're talking about, I'm myself still taking that decision. I haven't enrolled in a PhD program yet. And in a way, I don't really need it, at least in a professional setting, Um Especially because I think in the States, uh, I've worked with some business anthropologists in the States before. And if they had a PhD, I believe they were getting a much higher salary. (laughs) That doesn't happen in Spain so much. You're not going to get paid more if you're a PhD anthropologist working in business than if you don't have that PhD. So on the one hand, I don't really need it, at least to, to work currently. But it's something that is constantly there in the back of my of my mind, like something that I feel I should be doing. And and it's why do I feel I should be doing it? Well, there's a lot of different co- meanings and reasons. One is, well, if you think about it, I've studied most part of my life no, since since I was like three until very recently ago. And so it just feels like the natural way of picking that experience. No, it's like the highest level that you can reach in education more or less, no? So it feels like finishing off something, no? Quite like a milestone. On another hand, it's a, it's a big ego thing. Uh, definitely, I believe, right? And acad- academia impregnates us with this ego dynamics. I've, um, I think I also put pressure on myself because I've heard in the past people made laugh of other people because they were doing their PhDs in their 50s or something like that, no? And I've heard this at the university, no? Like, oh, he's a loser because, you know, now doing a PhD. So I guess I even have that pressure of, no, you should do your PhD and you should do it young. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to fight all these voices in my mind and I still don't have a, a stable decision But what I do have more and more clear each day is that if I end up doing a PhD, I want it to be mostly as a personal thing, no, something I want to do for myself. So it has to be a topic of research that I'm really fond of and nothing that my director of thesis is more interested than me and things like that. Um, But also that I would like to explore what we call industrial PhDs. So I'm not sure if you have the same in the States, but I'm sure you do, no? Okay, so industrial PhD here in, in Spain, at least, is um, a program where you, it's 50% in, in academia, 50% with a specific company. So you get kind of like a scholarship from the company, which is kind of like your payment for those four years as well. And so you're doing a research, academic research project directed by a, a scholar, director thesis, but also directed by someone in that company 
a business manager that is also going to you know follow the whole process and make sure that your research is something that can be actionated in their company and useful for them in the long run. So um, so if I end up doing my PhD, that's what I would like to do. So I need to find the proper topic, find the proper company, make the connections. I'll take some time, but Very hopefully. But like you said, you know, today you don't really need it for what you're doing as evidenced by, you know, the company. And so for anybody else who might want to get into starting their own company, anything you would suggest? Yes. Um, and I think we've already talked a lot, a lot of, of things that could be useful for, for anyone who's starting. But um, so very quickly, maybe some uh, that come to my mind are um, make good use of your classics, classicals, no? So since we typically do have a very grounded um, um, background uh, on theory, classical theory, uh, don't forget all of that, you know, make good use of that and start innovating with that. So, um, for example, I don't know, how can you use Marvis uh, pyramid, Mar Marvin Harris uh, pyramid? How can you apply that to understand uh, the culture inside a company, for example? Start doing these little exercises, even if they're for yourself, no? Because that will give you that practice. And you need to practice a lot, like you say in the States, and I really like it, practice until, or fake it until you make it, no? Which is a way also of saying like fake, uh, practice, practice, pretend like you know what you're doing. And then one day suddenly it, it just, it feels like, like, um, like everything is running smoothly, no? Um, so yeah, then also another advice I would give to anyone who's starting is be proactive. I think uh, a lot of times in the beginnings, we're shy, we are not super comfortable with what we're doing, and we tend to be more reactive. Whatever comes to us, we try to give our best. But you shouldn't just wait for an opportunity to arise. You shouldn't just wait for the job of your dreams to be uh, a job call. Maybe you can be the one contacting a company and letting them know what you think you could do with that company, even if they haven't uh, put out a job post no? uh, or propose a, a project to any kind of organization and, and you know, try to uh, negotiate with them a small budget that they can afford. I mean, really push yourself to, to do these kinds of experiences. Uh, don't be shy to reach out to anyone, anyone who is inspirational for you, you know, try out. You always have the no for an answer, that's fine, but you can send them an email, reach out to them in LinkedIn, and maybe they'll be up for 20 minute virtual tea and maybe they'll be able to share a lot of, of wisdom. So yeah, I think being shy in the beginning is not gonna give you a lot of, <laughs> of good things. So be bold, yeah, be fearless. Yeah, great, wonderful. So where can any of the listeners find you? They can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, um, and they can write me at my email if they need anything. So, yeah, I'm always I'm always open to interesting chats. Great. Well, Veronica, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. It was great talking to you. And um, I'll link to you know the website to some of your talks. Any and um, if there's anything else, feel free to send it to me. Thank you, Matt. And thank you so much also for all your efforts with the podcast and all the amazing job you do. Thanks. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening 
to the Anthropology in Business podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.